Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Why does making friends as an adult feel so What hard? should I wear on a first date? What the date? hell is a formal? But that Why hookup is was not good. So what do I want my life to look like in five years? We, we want, want to know too. Since 2012, the Every Girl has been an online destination to help women around the world achieve the life of their dreams. Now, we're excited to bring you the same inspiring content with the Every Girl Podcast. Welcome back to the show. It's your host, Josie, and I hope you're all having a great start to 2023. We are back again with some killer New Year content, but this time it is about finance and setting money goals for this year. But let me tell you something, if you're like me and you're thinking, oh great, this is going to be some boring conversation about money. I have never been interested in finance. I never thought I was good at money or knowledgeable with money and I told Tori, like, I am part of the problem because I very much have had this identity that I don't know about finance. I don't care about finance. Like, it all feels so out of reach for me. So I asked Tori to come on out of all the amazing financial experts out there because the way that she explains money and growing wealth, like her content, the way she talks about it, it is the one time that I actually thought, huh, that makes sense. Or like, Maybe I can be really smart with money. I know her advice in this episode will make you all feel the exact same, no matter your relationship with finance. I have typically found the topic of finance really boring. Okay, I'm very open about that, but I love the way she talks about it. I mean, this episode is one of my favorites. It's fascinating. Just pulling some text from her website, she says, fighting the patriarchy by making you rich. And another one, Having a financial education is a woman's best form of protest. Or the tagline of her book, Financial Feminist, which says, overcome the patriarchy's bullshit to master your money and build a life you love. I mean, that makes me amped. Like, I want to feel good about money after reading that. I love her messaging. So Tori Dunlap, who is she then? Tori Dunlap is a globally recognized money expert who has been featured on The Today Show, Good Morning America. Time Magazine, and Forbes, just to name a few. She built her brand, The First 100K, after she saved 100K herself by the time she was 25 years old and wanted to set out to help other women be empowered to grow their wealth and fight financial inequality. I am so um, proud of this conversation. We cover so much and pack a lot of topics into this hour-long episode We talk about what money has to do with feminism, the investment gap, getting out of lack mindset and other mindsets holding you back. And she walks me through an exercise in this episode that really made me think, like it was weirdly more vulnerable than I probably have ever been on any episode, which is interesting since I did not expect that for a finance episode. It was just so interesting. Tori also shares her tangible tips on growing your wealth and setting resolutions for 2023. So there's a good balance between you know, really cool concepts, interesting ideas that will change the way you think. And then the tangible tips you can start applying today. Okay. So it packs a lot in. Let's dive right into it. Welcome Tori Dunlap to the Every Girl podcast. Before we dive into it all, this week's review comes from Tiffy who writes, I have been an Every Girl follower for years. I love this podcast. It's always right on time. I am not a new year resolution girl. Instead, I set my intentions through setting goals in my planner, doing a physical vision board and an electronic vision board set as my lock screen. So smart, by the way. And I pick one little word. My one little word for 2023 is serendipity. I think it aligns with manifesting and allowing space for my hard work to attract the things I really want in life. This podcast feels like serendipity to me. So grateful for this community. Tiffy, truly, this is 
such a good review. Honestly, I loved reading it. I love what you're doing for yourself to manifest your goals and to work for the year that you want and to become your best possible highest self this year. I think this is so powerful. And I love the word serendipity. I also feel like it's serendipity. I know this is so cheesy, but every time I connect with someone who is a listener of the podcast and says that one of the conversations has brought you a lot of value and support, That word always comes to my head too. I always think it's serendipitous. So thank you so much for this kind review and for being so inspiring and sharing your tips for manifesting your best life. I do get out there and have the best 2023 ever. Now let's dive into my conversation with Tori Dunlap. I also wanted to do a little sidebar tangent for you for a quick second because... I have to tell you, I selfishly am very excited for this conversation. I'm sure you hear this all the time, but I have never considered myself good with money. I'm like, I'm a creative. Like in Mm -hmm. school, I was always like, I'm a good writer. I'm creative. And I never thought to take a finance or business class in college. You know, so like now as an adult, I've carried that identity of I'm not good with money. You know, I'm not going to get rich on my own. I don't ask for raises. Like I, I just, it's so not my identity. So I think I am the perfect stereotype example, I guess, of a lot of people, a lot of women out there who have this identity. So I just want to say like, I selfishly am very excited for this. I think everything that you put out is so tangible and helpful. And I have sought out a lot of financial expert advice, like just kind of like trying to find an expert and information out there and reading books. And what you have done has been the first time that I've actually thought, okay, maybe I can be good with money. Like maybe, you know, this is something limiting and maybe I can save a hundred K on my own. Like it's the very first time. We're that recording this, right? That, Cause so. that was the most beautifully authentic. <laughs> Thank you. That's so sweet. I really appreciate that. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I just want to tell you really quick because yeah. I, I have to start this off by saying like selfishly, thank you. I, I need your information. I know oh. so many people out there like feel the exact same way. Thank you. So With that being said, getting started, Tori Dunlap is here with me. Tori, welcome to the show. Thank you so much again for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thank you for those kind words. That just makes my life. So I appreciate it. Okay. So everything you put out, as we will get into, is so helpful. You have such tangible advice. I believe you are truly fighting the patriarchy with what you're doing. And we are going to get into all of that. But first, I want to start with your story because how you became a financial expert and how you started her first 100K is so interesting. So I want you to speak on that because it's such a great story. Yeah, this was not the plan. If you would have told me five years ago that I would be a money expert, I would have laughed in your face. I had parents who were really committed to educating me about money. And so I grew up learning how to save money, learning not to overspend on credit cards. And I thought that was the case for everybody. I thought, okay, everybody knows this. And of course, I you know, get into college, graduate college, and start having conversations and realize that that financial education was a privilege. And with that privilege came a responsibility. So I was the friend all of my friends were coming to for advice and guidance. And I was navigating my own financial situation as a new college grad trying to figure out, okay, how do I save money? How do I manage my first like big girl paycheck? I graduated college in May of 2016. And of course, as we all know, uh, Donald Trump gets elected not soon after that. And I thought as a 22-year-old woman that I was going to be coming into adulthood, coming into womanhood in a very different country that we all hoped. And then what ended up happening, of course, is not what we expected. And I was trying to figure out the kind of person I wanted to be, reckoning with my own privilege and understanding that, okay, when I did have money, I was able to leave bad situations that I didn't want to be in anymore. I was able to support causes that I wanted and and community organizations I wanted to see more of. I was able to take a trip and, you know, afford these kind of small luxuries and start a business. And so I was the friend, again, that everybody was coming to for financial advice. I was seeing that when I had money, I had options. And it occurred to me that I didn't, I, I still don't think we have any sort of equality for any marginalized group until we have financial equality. And so I was working a nine to five in marketing. I had majored in organizational communication and theater in college, neither of which was a business degree, neither of which was definitely not a finance degree. So I was working in marketing and then her first under K was born in December of 2016, right after the election. And as I grew the business and as my own you know, financial knowledge grew, 
you start peeling back the onion layers and you realize just how interwoven and interconnected this all is. And our mission at Her First 100K is uh, we fight the patriarchy by making you rich. So flash forward to now, I quit my job in 2019 after I hit my own 100K. I was on Good Morning America, got the call while I was celebrating abroad with my friend, my best friend, got the call, quit my job. Now we're a global multi-million dollar business. We have a team spread out through the entire world. We have over three and a half million financial feminists. We have a podcast called Financial Feminist. We have a book that just came out called Financial Feminist. And that's just been my life's work is teaching women how to navigate the financial system, how to pay off debt, how to save money, how to start investing, how to negotiate their salaries without shame, without judgment, and as a form of protest against a society that actively gatekeeps this information. That is like that, like that gives me chills. That's the first time I've heard money talked about that. I'm like, oh my God, like I'm into this. So that, that is so cool. It's so crazy what you've been able to do. Where did your money confidence come from? Like, I know you said that you felt really educated by your parents, which is awesome. Like, was that it that, that you felt more confident with money just because of the education or was there something else growing up that made you feel like you had a good handle on money and a good money mindset? I think that was the first thing uh, was, you know, this this education for my parents. And my parents were committed to teaching me about money because neither of them grew up with a lot, especially my dad. And so for them, it was like, okay, how can we make strategic frugal decisions in order to give her a better life than we had, a better childhood than we had? I'm forever thankful for that. I think the other thing too that they taught me that ended up extending into every aspect of my work now is that money is not bad. It's not, you know, inherently immoral. It is not something that is keeping you from your goals or keeping you from the life you want, but rather money is a tool to build the life that you want. And I think that simple reframe has the power to change absolutely everything. Because again, when you have money, you have options. And I think that money can be used as a tool Whether that's, okay, I want to travel every single year. Well, you need money to do that. Okay, I want to have children. Okay, you need money to do that. I want to start a business. I want to, again, donate to causes I believe in. I want to, even just to be able to afford a Starbucks every once in a while without feeling guilty. Like you need money to do that. And so I think that that was the other transformational thing is I never saw money as bad or evil or something not worth pursuing. I instead saw money as that tool or that, the kind of piece that unlocked all of the rest of it. And I wish we talked about money that way because even I can hear in, in, you know, how you're describing money of this feels like scary and like I'm bad with money. And it's like, I was a theater major. Like I didn't study statistics. I didn't study (laughs) finance, right? But it was like, okay, how can I use money as a tool to build the life that I want? And I think that that's really the mindset I've always had. And I think that's one of the reasons why her first 100K has been really successful is the beautiful thing now is we get messages every day from a woman somewhere. It's like every five minutes. This is like, I've paid off 20K in debt. I negotiated my salary for the first time. I just have $1,000 in savings. And those are incredible, but always the part two is what gets me. It's always big financial win, comma. And now I feel more confident in every aspect of my life. Like that is almost always the second part of the message we get. Because when you are confident with your money, you show up different in every space you're in, right? For me, I again, I, the money gave me the opportunity to quit my job and work for myself. So I show up more confident in those spaces. If I go out on a date, even in 2022, I think we subtly believe like, okay, if I'm going on a date and I'm trying to find a partner, I'm trying to figure out like, could this person provide for me? Does this person have money? For me, it doesn't even matter. Like I'm going to out earn any man I sit next to on a date. And that's a fucking great feeling. Like that's not even an option. (laughs) So I'm pursuing a relationship to find a person who is kind and caring and not necessarily got a lot of money, right? The other thing too is it's like, if I want to start affecting change in the world, you need money to do that in our society, in our system. And if I just have a little bit of money, one, I'm taking care of myself which is a powerful form of protest, again, in a society that has demanded that women play small. It is a powerful thing for me to play big. And when I have money, I can start to change the communities around me. So money as a tool, I think, is so powerful. And it's become the entire mission of Her First 100K. And it's like the thesis of our podcast and book. I love that so much. I love that there's such a focus on mindset. And it's making me think of all these 
you know, things. I'm sure everyone out there is like, oh my gosh, yes, I felt that way before where like, I, I feel like even so I'm in wellness. And so there's, I think this idea in wellness where it's like, like I felt so weird when I started, you know, having clients that I would coach because I was like, I feel bad charging these people money to, you know, like there's this almost like guilt in money where it feels like if we're making money, we're doing something wrong because it's supposed to be like a service. Can we talk about that? Let's talk about that for a second. Please talk about it. I want to hear what you think. I have an entire section in my book about this. So let's go like way, way back. When we were raised, and I'm going to use a a gender binary of girls and boys, but when we are raised, right, stereotypically, the toys that are given to boys are like trucks, Legos, things to build, right? They promote self-sufficiency. They promote critical thinking and you building something yourself, right? That is your value. you know, in that sphere is like, okay, you built something for yourself. That's amazing. That's what we condition into boys. Wow. What do we give girls? We give girls dolls, easy bake ovens, bridal veils, right? We give a literal child another child to take care of. Yeah. We don't talk about it that way, right? We are conditioning (laughs) girls that their value, and again, I put value in quotes, their value is in selflessness, caring of others, right? Your value is not in your own critical thinking or your own ingenuity. It is in the benefit or the the gift you could give to others and the self-sacrifice. So this starts when we're extremely young. So what happens then when women have the audacity to be quote unquote selfish, to pursue wealth, to take care of themselves? Well, first of all, Society does not like it because when you have money as a woman, you are no longer controllable. And society has made you and asked you and demanded you be controllable for a very long time. And second, because you're no longer controllable, they do one last ditch effort at control, which is to weaponize your altruism, which is what you're talking about, which is like that feeling of guilt of like the amount of times that I get told well, why aren't you just working for free? Like personal finance, okay, you should just give this for free. If you really believed in it, you should just work for free. Do you go to any doctor or lawyer, especially a man doctor or lawyer, and demand like, oh, if you really cared about people, you would just work for free? No, because you need to get paid for your expertise and also because you have to make a living, right? Yes, I do this because I love it. Yes, 100%. I also deserve to get paid for this. And that shouldn't be as like novel or exclamatory as it is. The other thing that happens too in that weaponization of altruism is that we like demand that women tax themselves by saying like, why aren't you donating more, right? Very microcosm example. Men can post on Instagram a photo of the bros at the golf course and one of them can have a Rolex on and the comments are like, cool Rolex bro, you must be doing well for yourself. But if a woman has the audacity to post a photo in a designer dress, it's not, wow, you must be doing well for yourself. It's, that is such a frivolous purchase. A hundred percent. You hear that word all the time. Why aren't you donating more? Why are you flaunting your success for just existing, by the way. Why are you flaunting your success or daddy's money, husband's money, not your money? So this is the cycle that we're up against. And I'm talking from a white woman's perspective. This is a whole more nuanced issue if you're a woman of color. So the thing about the pursuit of wealth, it is not bad. It is not evil. It is not immoral. Well, like a stack of government issued paper has no moral value. It's a stack of paper, right? It is the emotions or the thing that we do with that stack of paper. Now, plenty of people use money for really horrible, corrupt things. Plenty of people also use money for really beautiful things. And so this pursuit of wealth, this weaponization of altruism is one of the many patriarchal like narratives or patriarchal walls that we're constantly up against that we have to work through in order to feel more comfortable pursuing wealth, in order to feel like money is not a bad thing. Money is not an inherently more immoral thing to pursue. And even when you do have money, which is 
my experience, you look at my Instagram comments, like this is still the reality every single day. And I've been on my soapbox for a while here, so I'm going to wrap this up. But this is why (laughs) personal finance conversations cannot just be about, oh, here's how you budget or here's how, what a stock is, right? It has to be the acknowledgement of systemic oppression of these narratives perpetuated by the patriarchy to keep you underpaid and overworked and the things like racism, sexism, ableism, homophobia, all of the isms that have way a way bigger impact on your money than your individual choices do. Wow. I mean, that is is kind of like a mind-blowing moment for me, for sure. Like that, you're so right that there's the cultural piece of it has to be a, a part of the conversation when it comes to finance yep. every single time. That's so powerful. Like, so kind of to make it a little more like tangible for people listening, especially for women listening who have felt like I felt where you maybe feel like, oh, I don't deserve to be taking money or growing my wealth, or I'm not good at it. Or, or you, you are seeing those cultural implications showing up in your own mindset with money. What are some tips that you have for someone to like heal that relationship, especially like lack mindset too? I definitely want to talk to you about of, of like that very gender shaming of just don't buy the latte and, you know, then you'll have more money. And and so I think that there's this idea, especially for a lot of women, for me, for sure, where it's very much like a lack, like, okay, I always have to be saving. So I don't even know how to get my mind into the next step to be able to start thinking of growing wealth. So what tips do you have for someone to be able to start shifting their money mindset? So when I first started as a money coach back in like 2018, 2019, I'm all about actionable advice. I joke that I hate inspiration porn. Inspiration porn is like when you go to a conference and you hear the keynote speaker and they are like, change your life, be dream your big dreams. And you're like, cool. And then you realize they didn't tell you how. Like, I hate that shit. So I would dive right into like the actionable advice, which was like, here's how to get a budget together. Here's how to spend according to your values. And I talk about all of that still, especially in my book. But I realized what would happen is that we would have individuals who would be successful for a period of time, but they would come back to me and they had fallen off the bandwagon because we had not investigated their narratives around money, their financial trauma. So I spend the entire first chapter of my book, Financial Feminist, talking about the emotions and the psychology of money. It is the longest chapter. It was the chapter I spent the most time on. And I realized even if it is very uncomfortable. It's like going to therapy, right? (laughs) Like even if it's very uncomfortable, you cannot be good with money. You cannot develop a good, healthy relationship with money for the rest of your life until you start to understand what sort of emotional, psychological hangups you have about money. And... The, even the very emotions you associate with it. I think for most people, the, the emotions you so associate are fear, shame, guilt, scarcity, right? For me, I associate money with joy and abundance and ease and, and all of the good things, right? And so we talk about in the book how to shift from that scarcity into abundance, how to shift from fear into joy. And one of the great things that I started doing in coaching that's also reflective in my book is I ask people what their first money memory is. And Josie, if you're willing to share, I would love to do this live with you. Yes, please. Oh my God, I'm so interested. The first time you remember thinking about money, because the vast majority of our financial habits are actually cemented by age seven. By second grade, you have largely cemented the way you view money for the rest of your life unless you work to change it. And so our first money memory or even a couple of our first money memories can be really transformational and really illuminating in how we manage money right? And how we view money even as adults. So for me, I'll give you mine. Mine was, um, I was a theater kid, like I said, and I wanted to go see Annie the musical. It was probably four or five. And my mom told me, well, cool. If you want a ticket to Annie, you need to save your money. Now tickets to Annie were like $25. I did not have an income source as a four or five-year-old. It was not about actually buying the ticket. It was just my mom trying to get me to understand if you want something, you have to save for it. So I had an Altoids tin and I put quarters that I found on the street or like my lemonade money into this Altoids tin for probably three to six months before we were going to the show, right? And so I was taught, again, if you want something, you have to save for it. That was a great money memory. I think for a lot of people, a lot of clients, it's I realized that my family didn't have enough money or I saw my parents argue about money. So Josie, I would love if you're willing to share, I would love for you to tell us yours. I absolutely will. I'm trying to think because I I definitely remember probably at like nine or 10, 
I remember asking my mom, like, can I be like a, like they used to call like a mother's helper where you were too young to babysit, but you could like go help with like little kids. And so I remember thinking I want, like, I want my own money. I don't know where that idea came from though, but I remember thinking that of like being like maybe eight or nine and thinking, how can I make money for myself so that I can have things that I want to go buy? I mean, I would get like a little allowance, I think like weekly or monthly or something. I'm trying to remember. So it's not like I ever felt lack, but I definitely, I don't know. Like that's the one thing coming to mind for me. I'm trying to think of younger. Like I was lucky enough that I never kind of saw any amount of struggle or lack. So I know that that's a, that was a huge privilege to not have that as like my immediate first thought of money. But I would say just like the idea of like, okay, I see all these older kids that are doing things to make money. What can I be doing to be making more? And I wanted more for myself. Is that a good memory? Or I, I don't know if I remember anything earlier. I mean, there's no good or bad memory, right? It's just yeah. is. Okay. I would say the interesting thing, and you could even take this with you, you know, later today if you wanted, is like what sort of, again, narratives, beliefs, what sort of takeaways from those first money memories now influence the way you manage mm. money now or the way you view money now? Interesting. And again, we have a whole journaling exercise in the book around this. But one, it's just like so comforting to know that like this shit started so young and like you had very little control over it. Cause we like shame ourselves of like, again, if you're bad with money, it's somehow like a default, like bad trait. It's like ingrained in us. And it's like, no, that's not what it is. You were never taught this. And also society actively gatekeeps this information. So of course you weren't taught this, but also like anything in psychology, like you, there's certain things that you start believing or certain narratives you have without even knowing it just by what you consumed as a child. So I think that's the first thing. And the second thing is like, you have such a powerful opportunity to dig into that and to use that knowledge without shaming yourself or judging yourself to start making changes, right? And even with my, you know, quote unquote, positive memory of like, okay, I've learned how to save money. When it came time to like, decide if I wanted to quit my nine to five to run my business full time, that felt like such a risk. That felt so risky because I had watched my parents make the stable, smart choice. My dad has always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And unfortunately now, I mean, unless he starts a business in his 60s, like he's never going to have that opportunity. And I'm thankful for it in a way because like he provided for us, right? He picked the stable option, the nine to five, the 401k, the health insurance. And I literally had my parents on the phone with me going, you need to do everything you can to keep your job. Like you need to not quit your job. And so even these like quote unquote positive memories like affect the way you manage money potentially in a negative way because I was so scared to quit my job because I was like, okay, I won't have that steady paycheck. I have to pay for my own health insurance. I don't even know where to get health insurance. Like I have no idea what the fuck any of this is going to mean. And I joke with them all the time. I call them, you know, I'm like, hey, remember when I didn't keep my job and like, I'm way better off for it. But like, <laughs> even God. that, right? Like, okay, I was taught to value stability over anything else. That impacted the way I manage money and the decisions I did or did not make. And again, it's so illuminating. And if you give it the opportunity and you dig in and you're willing to be vulnerable with yourself, you will start to unpack a lot of this in a really concrete way. Okay. That is so crazy to think about as a child. What are those things? And now you're making me think too of like, I'm sure everybody has the experience where you're like really young and you want a toy and and you learn your parents are like, no, we can't buy every single toy you want, which like, duh, thank God, like you would be a monster if they did. But there's that like little bit of maybe like maybe beneficial lack where you're like learning, okay, money is not this limitless thing. There's a limited amount. And I, you know, there's only so much I can spend presents. You only get a certain time of year. Like you learn those things. So. Right. And maybe I'm, I'm not going to spend money on this so I can spend money somewhere else. Yeah. Right. You learn totally. that as well, hopefully. And the other thing too, that I see, um, especially with women of color, um, women who are first gen, who are, uh, you know, like recent immigrants is that it's very, very common because they, many of them don't grow up with a lot to then hoard their money because you don't know in theory, you think 
I don't know when the next paycheck's coming, or this could get taken out from under me at any possible moment. So I'm going to hoard all of my money. Mm. And we see this, especially again, with lower income or with, with families of color. And like just that response, right? Like on paper, it looks great because you're saving a shit ton of money. It's like, cool. They're saving a bunch of money. They're making smart decisions, but it's coming from that place of scarcity of like, I don't know when shit's going to hit the fan. So rather than like take a potential risk that could be beneficial, rather than, you know, giving myself the grace to go out to eat every once in a while, I'm going to hoard all of the money as my life preserver because I'm so terrified. Now we do need life preservers. We can talk about that a little later of like emergency funds are important, but like this idea of, you know, holding all of your money because you're scared that tomorrow you're not going to have it. That's not healthy either. And so again, so much unpacking you can do. And this is just for me, like this is just like half a chapter one in my book of like, we have to start here in order to do all of the things like learning how to pay off debt and learning how to save money and learning how to invest our money, et cetera, et cetera. I love that so much. But I I know that there's so much. And like you said, we're just skimming the surface and this is like step (laughs) 1.5. But I think that this, like I've never heard this anywhere. I, you know, I, I've listened to a lot of podcasts with financial experts. I've read books. I've never once heard about this mindset being the first thing you do. I've heard it. It's like start an emergency fund and then pay off your debt. And then like, I've heard those steps, but I've never, ever heard someone say what you're saying. And so I, I think it's, it's very powerful advice. I think the idea of like money, obviously being tied to security, you, you know, the more money you have, the the more you feel like you can, like you said at the beginning, like that you can leave situations that are no longer good for you, that you have more power to be financially secure, to be secure in your life, but that there's also this tie, like you're saying, we actually had on Aishwara Iyer, who is the CEO of Brightland. And she was saying the same thing that you're saying of, you know, she, her parents immigrated when she was a baby to the US. And so she always had this idea of like, I'm not going to start a business. I, you know, value safety and security. And so I think that that's a really interesting point too, that there's that security piece of it. So it's like maybe holding on to more money, like you're saying, than you even need to do. So for people like that, who who do kind of, who are listening to this, noticing I have that pattern where I'm like, I'm going to hold all my money and and everything I possibly can, I say beyond just, you know, the emergency fund, beyond those kind of uh, typical financial advice, I, I still feel this way that I I want to save everything I can instead of just what I need to save. What are those first steps to kind of getting out of that mindset? I want to acknowledge first that that might not be everybody's reality, right? Like having money at all, unfortunately, is a huge privilege. Uh, having an abundance of money yeah. or like a lot of money to like learn, even if it's just like an extra month of emergency savings is a privilege that plenty of people don't have. So first, acknowledge that off top. Second, I think so many people, again, we know it's from scarcity, right? And maybe I've just blown your mind and you haven't even, uh, you haven't even realized that up until this point, right? But it's a hundred percent from <laughs> scarcity. It's a hundred percent that like you are scared that that money could go away at any moment. And so you are trying to protect yourself by just like keeping it in a checking account. Maybe even not even that, keeping it like under your mattress, like, you know, in the backyard, like I joke, it's mattress cash. Um, the biggest thing is one, unpacking that emotionally, and two, understanding that you are actually, the way you build wealth is by investing. And there are ways to do that with minimal risk. And I, again, I teach this in the book. I teach this on the podcast. Like there are ways to invest with minimal risk. And the other thing that I see a lot with people, especially with women, is uh, analysis paralysis, which is like, we think we have to be experts. We think we have to research something to death in order to make a decision. And especially with money, because everything feels scary. Everything feels really high risk. You're like, I don't want to lose any money. So I don't have time to do that right now. So I'll wait six months. And then six months go by and you still haven't done it. And you're like, okay, but I'll do it next year. And then of course, 10 years have gone by and nothing's happened, right? There are certain like, quote unquote, like bad financial decisions, right? Like going into a lot of credit card debts, doing like really risky investments like day trading. But I think for the average person, actually the most egregious decision you can make is not making a decision. Like truly. I think one of the worst things that I see with women, 
specifically, is that analysis paralysis keeps them from making any sort of decision. And the truth is, when it comes to things like investing or moving your money into a high-yield savings account in order for it to work harder for you, I need you to spend like five minutes researching one and then just make a decision. Because they're all very, very similar. Like we have a recommendation at her first 100K. We've done that research for you. Beyond that, it's like, make sure it's insured, make sure it has good customer service and like you just need to make a decision. And especially with investing, I see this. Women do not invest at the same rates men do. We either wait longer to invest or we don't invest at all. Yet, women outperform men as investors. We are better investors than men, but we actually have to do it. Whoa. We have to do it. And if we don't do it, like you will not build your wealth. You will not grow your wealth. And I would rather you make a decision, even if it's not like the most optimized, best possible decision, than make no decision at all. And again, there's people like myself out there who can help guide you to make a good decision. But analysis paralysis is keeping literally millions of women from becoming rich, from building wealth. And purely because we've been told that you need to be perfect at this, we value perfection over progress when we should value progress over perfection. And because everything seems so scary, because we've been told by like all the Wall Street bros and chads that like the stock market is scary and that they they need to help us, we don't do it. We don't do it. That's so true. I mean, everything you're saying, I'm like, yep. In five years since I've been out of college, I haven't. So that's I all. I, investing. I know, Tori, I told you I need all your help. Do you Seriously. have a 401k? At every girl, do you have a I 401k? Do. Okay. Are you investing in a 401k? I do. Great. Then you're investing. I, do. I am. You're investing. You're an investor. Okay. So that counts? Yes. That's, the, other, that's the thing I hear from people all the time is they're like, I want to become an investor. I'm like, do you have a 401k? Are you, you contributing to it? And they're like, well, yeah, that's boring though. And I'm like, boring is what you want with investments. <laughs> you want investments very not sexy. I joke about that all the time. Investing should not be sexy. If you are investing for through a 401k or an IRA, which is an individual retirement account, these are the best ways to start investing because they're what's called tax-advantaged accounts, meaning that basically the government is incentivizing you to save for retirement by offering you tax breaks, right? So they're saying like, here's this carrot, dangle, 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 take it, we'll give you, like, well, you'll pay less in taxes, right? So 401k, IRA, there's some self-employed options if you are a self-employed person. But if you're investing there, honestly, 10 out of 10. Like, that's how you do it. Not sexy, like, but you're doing it. Go me. Wow. Okay. That's really reassuring to know. Okay. So, well, can I ask you, this might be like a little side tangent, but I'm just very like the idea of a 401k, it makes sense to me, obviously, because like when you're retired, you would have have grown all this money, but there, I don't know what it is about me, but I'm like, it's hard for me to wrap my brain around that. Cause I'm like, what if like my life could look vastly different when I'm 65? Like, so I'm doing it because I know it's smart. I know that's what you're supposed to do, but I, I can't really understand the real purpose of it because I'm like, I could be, you know, hit the lottery yeah. and like make so much more money by then. Or like, I don't know, sure. like my life could look vastly different. I think our generation, people don't have this linear career as much anymore. So like I could be rich and famous and be a billionaire and not need the 401k that I started when I was 21. So like, can you okay, explain here's the deal, like, though. Yeah, tell me. Tell me what you think. How do you think you become a millionaire? I need you to tell me how. I don't know. <laughs> you save in a 401k. Like, truly. Okay. Like, that's yeah. how you become a millionaire. So, okay, I'll give you the, like, math reasons, and then I'll give you the emotional reasons. The Perfect. math reasons are that you are going to work from roughly, let's say, for easy math, 25 to 65, right? And probably a couple years on either end of that. That is what, 40 years, right? You're going to work for about 40 years to keep yourself alive without working for roughly the same amount of time from like 65 to let's say, hopefully like 100 or 95. That's 30 years. So you are going to spend as much time working to make sure that you can spend all of the time not working, right? Retirement is the biggest expense of your life. It is bigger than college. It's bigger than sending your kids to college. It is bigger than buying a house. You will have to sustain yourself for as long without working as you did when you were working, right? And there's some of the biggest, like, expensive years of your life because of healthcare costs, because you're getting older, right? So that's one part of the math equation. The second part of the math equation is that investing 
more than anything else is the way we build wealth because of this thing called compound interest. Compound interest is when your interest earns interest, earns interest, earns interest, right? And if you start, even if it's just a small amount of money, time is way more important than the amount of money when it comes to investing because of compound interest. So my 100K at 25, that will be $1.6 million at 65, even if I never contribute another penny. Whoa. So I have already guaranteed that 65-year-old me will be a millionaire because I did some heavy lifting up front. Now, a lot of people don't have 100K. A lot of people aren't 25. Compound interest works if you're 18 or 88. Compound interest works regardless of how old or young you are and how much money you put in. $5, $5,000, compound interest still works. That's my math reasons. Let's talk about the emotional reasons. Josie at 65 is going to be somehow more badass than she is right now, right? Like, <laughs> I hope so. 65, grandma, nana, Josie. Oh my God, so she. Like my life, my 65-year, oh God. My 65-year-old me, like she is drinking Savion Blanc with lunch. She is taking her much younger Pilates instructor named Luca on like beautiful <laughs> trips. She is going to Tuscany and she has a villa there where she like rescues dogs from animal shelters. Like (laughs) this is 65-year-old me's life. Again, somehow more badass. I don't know how that's possible. We'll figure it out. But here's the thing is that 65-year-old you doesn't get all of the fun stuff unless 25, 30, 35, 40-year-old you does a little bit of lifting. Now, 28-year-old Tori is still going on trips, still going out to eat. She's still having a fun time, but she is balancing that by taking care of 65-year-old you. So one of the things I have people do in the book is literally like wax poetic, like I just did, about like, what does Nana you look like or grandparent you? And giving yourself some sort of like connection so you don't just feel like, okay, I'm putting away this money, but like, what is the purpose? And like, retirement's so far away and like, I don't want to fucking do this. It's like, No, you're doing it for you and you will spend this money. This money is not just like, you know, going off into the ether somewhere. It is for 65-year-old you to spend on Savion Blanc with lunch, right? (laughs) The other thing too is that I hear a lot from millennials and Gen Z, and I'm a millennial, but just barely, I'm like on the cusp, is that like the world is burning, zombie apocalypse is coming, Like, I could hit the lotto. I could do this. I also, like, everything's awful and shit. So, like, why would I do this? I don't remember the percentage, but it's something egregious. It's like 30 to 40% of people, like, are using the lottery as their retirement plan. Oh, my God. (laughs) Wow. It's crazy. Like, they think they're going to win the lottery. I don't, again, I don't know your odds, but I think it's like one in, like, 300 million of, like, hitting a substantial lottery. It's something crazy, right? So, One, that's just not realistic. Two, if we do go into a Hunger Games zombie apocalypse situation, isn't it going to be a lot better that you have some sort of money? Yeah. And if we don't have a zombie apocalypse Hunger Games association, aren't you going to look stupid that you don't have any money? (laughs) That's so true. And again, if you can, if you can save money, right? And this is where the systemic oppression part comes in that we've, we've discussed and will discuss again is that some people just can't save money. We're talking about people, if you can save, even if it's just a small amount of money, but aren't because it's like, oh, why would I do that when the world is burning? It's like, I would rather have money if the world is burning and I would rather have money if we're still here in 30 years, right? So true. Like, that's the smart decision. Now, not all of your money needs to go to retirement savings, right? Not all of your money needs to be saved. We have a, 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 you have to find the balance that just doesn't work to go all or nothing. But this idea of like, I'm not going to contribute for retirement. It's so far away. What's the point is denying cute little grandma, grandparent you a really, really kick-ass life. And like, I don't want to do that to her. I am obsessed with that. That, Tori, you just like really hit me hard. That makes so much sense of when you think about like, what is that life? Like, who is that person? When you do get your 401k, like, what does that look like? I think that that makes it so tangible for people to understand it and to be like, okay, I get it. It doesn't seem like this like way out there. Like I said, like I 
I'm doing it because I know I'm supposed to, but like other than that, don't really have any emotional tie to it. So, so I think that that is so helpful to conceptualize it in that very tangible way. Well, that's the thing with money and goals in general, right? If you're just like, I want to go to the gym every day, you're not going to do it because you've given yourself no reason to. Just like if you go like, okay, I want to save $1,000. Why? Why and how? You've given yourself no specifics. And again, I keep plugging it, but like everything I wrote is in this book. So we have an entire section on (laughs) on goal setting and goal, like goal keeping basically. And you have to make it mission driven. You have to make it why driven because you won't care. And especially when shit gets hard, you won't care. So rather than saying, I want to save $1,000 or I want to save money even, I want to save $1,000. Cool. That's more specific to go to Italy next year. Right. And that tells you, okay, if I'm going to Italy in July and it is January, I have six months to get there. You can divide $1,000 by six. You know roughly how much money you need to be saving every month in order to do that. Right. And then you can put a plan together. But you just being like, okay, I guess I save for retirement because like my dad's financial advisor friend named Steve told me to. Like, not helpful. Right. (laughs) It's like, okay, I'm taking care of grandparent me. And I have a very distinct idea of what my life looks like when I'm old and badass. Like, I have a very distinct idea of what that looks like. And I have a responsibility to care for her. Just like, you know, older generations have cared for us. Like, I have a responsibility to take care of her. And so I think that that helps reframe it and also gives you a reason to care. Because when you're setting goals, you have to give yourself, you have to give your brain, it's a literal psychology thing. You have to give your brain a reason to care. Not just a number, not just like, this is what I'm supposed to do. But like, I'm doing this specific thing for this specific reason. So that when shit does get hard and you're like, oh my God, I'm paying off my debt and I don't want to do that this month. And like, aren't we done with it already? You can remind yourself of the feeling that you know you're going to have when you don't have debt hanging over you anymore, right? Or when you're able to take the money that you are contributing to your debt and put it to something else that you really want, right? You're giving yourself a reason to care. That's so powerful. That's so true. That's exactly what I say to my clients with my health coaching business is like, what's your why to the goal and to focus on the why. So I, so that's so smart to apply that to money, whether it is you're trying to pay off debt, whether you're contributing to your 401k, whether you're saving for a trip to focus on that. Why are you doing that? Why? What is that version of you? So I love that so, so much. So I, I know that like in general, financial advice is like, it's hard to blanket statement anything, right? Like there's, it's obviously gonna be different. Someone who is just graduating college and yeah. is starting to pay off their student loans versus someone who's maybe 35 and, you know, in a very different position. Like it, it's hard to give blanket advice. And I, I totally know that, but I'm just curious if you have any weekly or monthly habits that you think can benefit anybody, no matter where you are and and what someone can start doing, like again, weekly or monthly, because like we talked about, this is coming out after the new year. So people are in this phase where they're like, I want to put all these goals for my 2023 in. So I'd love to hear if you have any suggestions for that. You can take a shot when I say it again, if this is a drinking game, but I, I have a practice in my book, Financial Feminist, about this. <laughs> so, um, One of the biggest things, and you'll connect with this, I'm sure, is that um, we have commodified the definition of self-care. We have associated self-care with like a face mask and a bubble bath and a glass bottle of wine, right? And like that has become self-care. That's not self-care. That is self-soothing. Tori, yes. We self-soothe when we've had a rough day or a rough week or a rough year, right? And it's like, they're not bad. They're just different, right? It's like what you're doing to cope in the moment. That is not a self-care action. A self-care action is the thing you do that feels really uncomfy, but you know future you's life is going to benefit. Things like going to therapy. In the moment, horribly uncomfortable. I don't want to sit in front of a stranger and cry for an hour, but like, I know it's going to help me. I don't want to have that hard conversation with a friend about a thing that they said three months ago that's still on my mind, but I need to talk to them about it. I don't want to eat a salad. I want to eat fried chicken. But I know when I have like, when I'm in the bathroom for three hours after I've had fried chicken, (laughs) like that's not great. So I'm going to eat a salad, right? They're the things we do that feel uncomfortable in the moment, but make future use life better. And this includes looking at your money. Going to feel probably a little sticky, a little uncomfortable you're going to get very squirmy, right? And especially if you've never done this before. But nothing changes unless you change it. 
Nothing changes unless you change it. So I have developed what I call a financial self-care practice called the money date. The money date is a non-negotiable period of time with your money. You and your money are going to get a little intimate and you are going to ask your money, how can I be bettering this relationship? How can I show up better in this relationship? And money's going to ask you the same thing. How can I show up better for you? How can I better this relationship? It is a dedicated time, like a half hour, hour. I like doing mine on like a Sunday night of looking at your money, looking at your accounts, looking at your debt, looking at your progress towards your goals, right? You're looking at all of it, your bank account statements, your credit card statements, again, like how much debt you've paid off. And it's a non-negotiable period of time. You're like putting it in your calendar. If the thought of this makes you break out in hives, make it an actual date. Make it something you look forward to. Get that glass bottle of wine. Get takeout from your favorite restaurant. Like make it actually something that you're excited about, but it's non-negotiable. The other thing too, with the self-care practice is yes, you're like setting goals or you know tracking your progress towards them and like adjusting, but you cannot see if you've actually done anything unless you look. You have no idea how much debt you've paid off in order to keep going unless you look. You cannot see your own progress unless you're checking your own progress. And I see this so often with people is they don't want to check their money. They ostrich affect it, meaning they bury their heads in the sand. They act like their problems don't exist, right? One, your problems do exist even if your like, ears are full of sand. Like That doesn't help. And two, you cannot see if you are paying off debt, if you are accomplishing your goals, or if you're progressing towards your goals in order to keep motivated if you don't look. So you have to look. And it's your way of, yes, like tweaking, readjusting, but also celebrating, holy shit, I paid off $500 of debt last month. Cool, I can pay off $550 of debt this month because actually that felt a little easy. Cool, let's keep going, right? That's how we have to commit to our goals is one, giving yourself a designated time that's non-negotiable, two, checking all of your accounts to tweak, but also checking everything to make sure that you are applauding yourself for the progress you're making. I love that idea of a, a little date for yourself. So are you looking to be like, like you said, like that was a great example of, you know, I might be able to be paying off more debt quicker because last month it was easier for me. So like you're looking for things like that or like I'm spending too much on this. Yeah. Or last month really sucked and I don't want to do that again. So I'm going to contribute a little bit less to my debt or I'm going to contribute a little less to savings because I did feel a little deprived after that month. So yeah, it's constant readjusting, right? And I really do think of it like a relationship, right? Like if you're in you know, a romantic partnership, you're probably having conversations, or you should be having conversations about how this relationship is progressing, right? And it's like, if you feel emotionally fulfilled, sexually fulfilled, like if, if you are feeling good in this relationship, and then you're also asking your partner, Hey, are there any ways I can better support you? Right. Right. Like, how are you feeling? Are you emotionally, sexually fulfilled? Are you all of these things? Do you feel like this is a healthy, good relationship? And what can we improve if anything? And what did we do? Great. Right. Like what are, what are the lovely, great things about why I love this relationship? That's what you're doing with your money right? You are figuring out, can my money work harder for me? Can my money show up for me in this relationship differently or better? And how can I show up differently or better in this relationship? And what are we already doing great? Tori, you like know how to talk about money in my language. Like I, which I'm sure like everybody says that to you because that's your job. But I'm like, that just made so much sense. Like that was the most fun I've ever had talking about how to have a financial checkup. So that totally makes sense. Is there like, like, this is something else that confuses me. Is there like a percentage that you should know, like when you're doing that checkup with yourself, that there is like, okay, this much should be going to my everything I need versus what I can just spend for fun? Like, are there percentages or no? There are no percentages because personal finance is personal. I don't know your goals. I don't know your income. I don't know what you're comfortable with. Again, take another fucking shot, but I talk about in the book, our budgeting method that is like no apps, no spreadsheets required. And it all hinges on you figuring out what your numbers actually are for you. And that is like not a fun answer, right? I would love to give like the prescriptive answer, but the truth is, it's like everybody's different and there is no one size fits all thing when it comes to money. Somebody might want to buy a house. Somebody's like, nope, I don't want to buy a house. Somebody's like, okay, I am good just making the amount of money I'm making 
and not working any harder. And somebody might be like, I want to make as much money as possible. Like, I don't fucking care. So it, it really depends on the person. But the thing is, is that you do have to find the balance between spending for current you, right? And also making sure you're taking care of future you. And that balance, I think, is actually the thing that is hardest for people to find, but most important. And there are no spenders or savers. This is a a narrative we hear a lot of the time is it's like, are you a spender or are you a saver? We are all spenders. All of us. I could get an Olympic gold medal in saving money. Like, I'm better than anybody. However, I will spend that money. I will. I might not spend it today. I might spend it in two years. I might spend it when I retire. Nana me might spend it. But it will get spent. So this, like misconception of like, oh, I'm really bad at saving money. Like I'm just a spender. It's like, actually, we're all spenders. It's just thinking about when am I going to spend it and what am I going to spend it on? It doesn't have to be spent right now. Some of it shouldn't be spent right now. Some of it will be spent. All of it will be spent just later, right? Some of it will be spent later. And I think that's also a great reframe for people who are just like, I just spend all the time and I'm just such a spender. That's again, not like a default personality trait. That's not ingrained in you. That is learned behavior. And you can spend money. There's nothing wrong with that. Everybody's a spender. It's just thinking strategically about what are you spending your money on and does it reflect your values? That's such a good point. Like that made me think like, no one wants to be like Ebenezer Scrooge and die with all this money. Like obviously you want to, be able to like leave some for your children or like maybe like probably everyone has goals after. Yeah. And even if you don't spend it, right? If you do leave an inheritance, someone will spend the money. That's still spending. That will right. get spent. Right. That's so true that the only purpose of saving is to be able to spend that eventually. So that's a really great reframe is that we are all spenders and the purpose of money is to spend it, like not to hoard it all in our bank account until the day we die. So I think that that is a really, really great, powerful reframe. And I love that so much. Everything you said was so good. I love your advice about no one needs a, like there's no one size fits all percentage because I've actually struggled with this because I I found this financial expert like a few years ago who had percentages laid out and I tried to do it, but I live in LA, I have my own business. Like, and I'm like, I'm screwed. Like, even though it wasn't like maybe this, here's exactly what to go do. But to start with that, removing kind of the shame where it's like everybody should have this exact thing when in reality, we all have different goals. We all have different needs. We all have different incomes. We have a vast variety of ways that we are using and making money. So I think that that's helpful. I know that you already said you have a lot in your book that helps people kind of have that financial um, plan for them. And I love that. I can't wait to read your book for that reason. I know it's going to help me so much. Um, So all of that was amazing advice, Tori. I have like just a couple more, maybe like tangible questions that I'm just so curious to wrap up with. So the first question, because I know, you know, this episode, like we said, is coming out after the holidays, the beginning of 2023. So people are like, oh my God, I just spent so much money on gifts and travel and I am so screwed. Like for people that are like, I feel stressed because of how much I just spent, what can they do now to feel more in control? One, give yourself grace. Life is hard. Shit is hard. Especially these last couple of years. Shit is hard. Two, redefine what success looks like for you right? And get really specific on what those goals are, right? We were talking before of relating those goals to some sort of why and also making them specific. The amount of times I've heard people be like, I'm going to get better with money this year. And I'm like, that's not a goal. <laughs> like that's, that's like very well intended, but like, that's not a goal. Like that doesn't tell me anything, right? Like what does getting good with money look like to you? I think the other thing too is getting really honest with yourself. It might be really uncomfortable to go look at your credit card statement. And to be like, okay, what damage was done here? But you do have to be honest with yourself in order to progress and do it without shame or judgment. Shame and judgment do not help. They just make you feel worse. It's, it's not helpful. Shame is the one human emotion that has no actual like helpful purpose. So we're not going to do shame at all. I love that. I love that. I love that. that I, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that like, I feel free. Like that's amazing to hear. I know you talked about resolution that saying, I want to save more money. I want to be rich is like, what does that even look like? But what are some financial resolutions that you maybe can suggest again, knowing that everybody has different goals and different ideas, but like, what are some examples of financial resolutions that someone can start setting for 2023? 
Yeah. I mean, if you have debt, right, maybe it is, I want to pay off this piece of debt by the end of the year, or I want to pay off half of this debt by the end of the year, right? Maybe it's, yeah, I want to take a trip to Italy in the summer. I want to take a trip somewhere. Try to define where it is because that's going to help you stay motivated. Here's what it's going to cost. Okay, I can do the math. It's going to cost $1,000 divided by six. That's the amount of money I need to be saving every month. So I'm going to save I'm trying to do that quick math. What is it? A hundred and some bucks, right? Like I'm going to save X amount of money so I can go to Italy and eat pasta, right? And like make it as like tactile, tactile, like visual as possible. The other thing too, again, like you were saying, like, I just want to get rich. Like what does rich look like? I talk with um, my fellow uh, finance expert and friends, and he's also featured in the book, Ramit Sethi. And he talks about like rich life. Like what does your rich life look like? Is your rich life, I get to leave work at three so I can pick up my kids? Is your rich life, you know, I can go into Whole Foods and buy any cheese I want without thinking about it? Is your rich life, I would like to finally start that business this year because I hate working for somebody else? Like you get to define what that rich life is for you. It doesn't have to be and probably shouldn't be just like a number in the bank account. It is like, what does that mean? What, how, again, why? Why is that your thing? And when you're setting goals, set the goals that are actually going to matter to you, not matter to somebody else. This is the other thing I see is that people think like, okay, the dream, right? I need to buy a house. Do you want to buy a house? Like, do you actually, do you want to be a homeowner? Because if you don't, don't. Wow. Yeah. And frankly, homeownership is not accessible for the vast majority of us if we live in a major city anyway. So it's like, like, do you actually want to do that thing? Do you actually want to work nine to five for the rest of your life? Do you actually want to buy a house? Do you want to have kids? Do you want to get married? Like, if you do, great. No shame. Amazing. But if you don't, but somebody else is telling you you should, don't do it. We're not going to should this year. It's what do you want to do? And then how are you going to create the plan to get you there? Oh my God, that's so good. That honestly makes it feel so easy because it is like defining it, being super specific, rethinking what you want. I love that advice of rethinking. Like, what, what does a rich life look like for you? I think that that's like, I want to go journal. What is my rich life? And write down all those things so I have it to look back on and then to make my financial goals. So that was so helpful, Tori. I love that so much. I have just a few rapid fire, really quick, easy questions to wrap up with. First one, this might be hard, but I'm very curious what your New Year's resolution or your goal for 2023 is. To be honest with you, I am the most goal-oriented, ambitious person. And I think um, as I reflected, I kind of want to not set goals in 2023 because like the goal just might be like take care of yourself. And then I have to define like what that looks like. This book has been the hardest thing professionally I've ever done. Like we've just, and we're recording this in, Dece- in December and like, uh, oh gosh, I have worked so hard, so fucking hard. And my team has worked so hard and like, I just need a break. Like I'm tired. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I think um, I have to, I haven't really thought about it. I'm just trying to get through the end of this year. But honestly, like I'm such a goal-oriented person that I think it actually might be really healthy to just be like, we're not going to set any goals or our goals are going to be like, sleep more and like define what that <laughs> means. Like, I think that that, that is going to actually end up being, um, yeah. But I, I have already set my word of 2023, which is nourish. And it's like, oh, I love nourish, nourish (sighs) myself uh, because I took care of everybody else this year. I took care of the company. I took care of my team, took care of everybody else. And we're doing all of these things for the health of the business and the health of our brand and the health of our reputation, but not really the health of me as an individual um, outside of uh, my professional accomplishments. So I love that, Tori. My answer is a non-answer. You deserve the (laughs) non-answer. You for sure do after this. And that's on balance, ladies and gentlemen, to know that this was very goal-oriented. Now it's time to rest and relax and nourish. I love that. That's an amazing answer. Next rapid fire, what is your coffee order? Because we know that not buying the latte is not accurate financial advice. So what is your coffee order? Water. Oh, you don't like coffee? I have maybe a coffee a week. And when I do have coffee, when I go to Starbucks, it is the iced brown sugar oat milk shaken espresso with light ice. I hear people love Fun, that. quick hack at Starbucks. If you are ordering an ice drink, order it with light ice because they pack it full of ice and you get more drink if you order it with light ice. I just so heard when that. When I do have coffee. That's an amazing 
Life-changing tip. Or like no ice. There are certain things that just don't need ice. So, yep. It's so true. And, and then like it always gets watery after like five minutes. So genius. I love that. Good for you for the energy you have to have and not needing coffee sleep. every day. That's amazing. It's sleep, baby. <laughs> amazing how that works, isn't it? <laughs> okay, Tori, besides obviously your own that you've put all this crazy time into, what is your favorite book? Fiction is The Great Gatsby. Nonfiction, probably Untamed. Untamed Changed My Life by Glennon Doyle. I could talk about that forever. That yeah, it, I totally agree with you. Changed my life. Changed my life. That's such a good one. Okay. Um, lastly, a podcast, a resource, a documentary, a TV show, anything that has changed your life or resonated with you? Oh, gosh. I love Maintenance Phase. Like Their podcast is fantastic if you haven't heard of Maintenance Phase, um, especially in, the, in, in doing wellness. I think, it, yeah, it's a really powerful show. Oh, gosh. There's so many things. I've had a recurring theme this year. This is not a rapid fire thing. I'm going to go off on a tangent for a second, but like (laughs) I've had a recurring theme unintentionally of um, like alternate dimensions or different like paths that we take in life of, you know, like those moments where you realize like, oh, if I had made even the slighter different decision, everything would have changed. Like I met my partner at a bar. Like I've never been to that bar. He wasn't going to go out. Like, if I wouldn't have sat, not only, you know, been to that bar, been out that night, I would have sat in a different area of the bar if we would have gone to the bar next door. Like, it's just so interesting to think about, like, even that. Okay, if I would have, like, gone to a different college or if I would have, like, just, like, taken one different class or... It's just so interesting. And... um, Crazy. Like, almost probably half a dozen, like, books I've read or... Uh, podcasts I've listened to or movies I've seen have dealt with this like, you know, this like decision that you make. And if you had made a different decision, everything would have been different. And so I've just been reflecting on that a lot of just the like incredible opportunity, one that life is in general, but two that um, you can change it at any time and that your life has taken a certain path because of these little minuscule like decisions that you've made or choices that you've made or choices that you haven't made. I just think it's so interesting to think about how your life might be different, even if you would just, you know, turn left instead of right one time. So thinking about that a lot. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, you're like leaving our audience with quite the extensive <laughs> amount to think about. I'm obsessed with that though, really. Cause I, I think about that too, Tori. We're, I think we're like philosophical. Yeah. We're like, we got to go there. We got to go to like, the why, because I, 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 so I think about that every day of like, oh my God, this tiny little thing changed everything in my life. Like what happened if I didn't do that? Like what is going to be in the future? That small little thing I do, that's going to transform everything else. Like it's, it's fascinating. So I love that. My God, there's been so many like little mind blow moments. I love that so much. You are so cool, Tori. I love you. I love your advice. Where can everyone find you? Obviously, pimp out where they can get your book, where they can find you on social media, your podcast. I know you have so much going on. So tell us everywhere we can find you. Herfirst100k.com is where you can find me. H-E-R-F-I-R-S-T-1-0-0-K.com. Uh, the book and podcast are called Financial Feminist and you can get them wherever you get your books, wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, I'm at Her First Center K on all the socials. So I would appreciate it. Thank you so much, Tori. It was so much fun to talk to you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.